Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Matthew chapter 5 is where we are this morning, and we're looking at verses 21 to 26. Our passage this morning is obviously relevant. It's obviously relevant because it deals with a sin that every single one of us face. In his book, Good and Angry, Redeeming Anger, Irritation, Complaining, and Bitterness, author David Pallison writes this, Anger is the reaction that incinerates marriages and disintegrates families. It energizes gossip and guns down classmates. It divides churches, it turns friendships into enmity and erupts in road rage. It is the stuff of every form of grievance and bitterness. The fact that some of us overreact in less colorful ways does not mean that those who are quiet are not angry. Anger is also the basic DNA of complaining, brooding, irritability, and bickering. The problem of anger, he says, is like a pair of bathroom slippers. One size really does fit all. The crucial issues in anger touch every one of us. Our passage is obviously relevant, isn't it? All of us, whether, whether young or old, whoever you are, we struggle with the problem of anger. Anger is a universal problem. None of us is immune to it. None of us is exempt from it. It touches every culture. It touches every generation. It's found in our homes. It's found in our marriages. It's found in our churches. All of us know the temptation and the sin of anger. Think with me, if you would, for just a moment this morning, of all the, all the places and in all the ways we see anger expressed. Okay, Children, listen to me. Children, youth, I wonder... This week, if you went all week without someone, maybe a parent, talking to you about your anger. Or I wonder this morning if we had a window this week into your home and into your marriage and into your life, what we would see. Would we see the problem of anger? How about in churches? How many churches have split because of problems with anger. How many pastors berate their congregations in angry tirades? It's everywhere and in everything. In his book, Pallison, he describes that while many of us, we might express anger differently, there might be different ways in which we express anger, it's still something we all experience. And he offers two really helpful illustrations here to describe how we express anger differently. The first, he says what he calls the volcano and the iceberg. Some of us are like volcanoes and some of us are like icebergs. First, the volcano. The volcano. This is the person where your anger, it seems to constantly be boiling under the surface. And... Barely controllable, always on the edge of erupting. I mean, you're like Mount St. Helens, ready to go off at any moment, and everybody around you is walking on eggshells, the volcano. But then there's what he calls the iceberg. Pallison writes, anger is the hot emotion by which we vent our displeasure, but some of the most ominous forms 
can be cold as ice. You seem cool, you seem calm, but it is a chilly, cold sort of anger. You don't get mad, you get even. It's a cold, calculated tactic where you become bitter, you become distant, you become self-centered, you become entitled, giving the cold shoulder to your spouse, to your children, to your coworker, beloved. The temptation to sin in anger touches us all. In fact, it's even what Jerry Bridges calls a respectable sin. A respectable sin. It's a sin we tolerate. It's a sin that we try to justify. I was just blowing off steam. That's just the way I'm wired. That's just who I am. Well, if my, if my child hadn't done that, if my wife hadn't said this or done that, I wouldn't have reacted that way. We allow it to fester and grow and eat away like a cancer to our relationships. And then we wonder why, 20 years later, our marriage is on the brink of divorce. Or we wonder why we had children that when we snapped at them, they snapped in line, but now they won't even talk to us. And then, I'm just tilling the surface here. Think of all the various ways the Bible describes anger. What we might call anger's ugly cousins. I went through the scriptures this past week as best I could, and I tried to gather up several ways in which we see anger is expressed, the the fruit of anger. Just listen to some of the ways the Bible describes it. There is bitterness, wrath, slander, malice, murder, harshness, enmity, strife, fits of anger, holding a grudge, rudeness, resentment, irritability, rage. I'm sure there's many more. And beloved, here this morning, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wants to show us the seriousness of the sin of anger and also the grace-empowered means to fight it, to put it to death in our lives. He, He wants to show us, he wants his disciples to see anger for what it really is, And he wants us to be a people, kingdom citizens, who aren't characterized by anger, but by love and grace and forgiveness and reconciled relationships. Let's see it together this morning. If you have your place there, Matthew chapter 5, would you stand with me out of honor for the reading of God's word if you're able? We're going to begin reading in verse 21. The Apostle Matthew writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the very words of Jesus himself. Verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You can be seated this morning. If you remember, we have entitled this section here that is really spanning from chapter 5, verse 21, all the way to chapter 7, verse 12, this really middle section of the Sermon on the Mount. We've entitled it, The radical righteousness of the kingdom. The radical righteousness of the kingdom. And that title, it comes from what we see there. If you remember back, notice we saw it a few weeks ago in verse 20. Where Jesus says to his disciples, For I tell you, unless your righteousness 
exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the most externally moral, the most externally religious people, you won't make it to heaven. Now, he isn't for one second saying, you just have to be a little bit better than them. You, you just have to try a little harder than them if you want to get into heaven. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, unless you have experienced such a true work of grace in your soul that transforms you from the inside out, you won't get into heaven. It isn't a quantitatively different righteousness. It's a qualitatively different righteousness. Not quantitatively, qualitatively. This is a righteousness that isn't merely external. No, this is a righteousness flowing from a heart that has been inwardly transformed by grace. Or another way to say it would be, there is, there is a justifying righteousness that we receive only by faith, where we are declared righteous before God, free gift of God's grace through the work of Christ, that then works itself out in a practical righteousness in the way that you live. And that's the kind of righteousness you have to have if you want to make it into my kingdom, Jesus says. Because then, notice in verses 21 to 48, Jesus now turns to give six examples, six illustrations of what this radical righteousness will look like in our lives. This is what righteousness looks like for his kingdom citizens. Six examples, or six antitheses, you might say, because each of them, notice, begins with the same formula. Look there in verse 21. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, where then Jesus quotes here from the Old Testament law, six times. Now, it's important to note, we saw this over the last couple of weeks, that Jesus here, he isn't, he isn't contradicting the law of Moses. He isn't challenging the law of Moses. He isn't teaching something different than what the law of Moses taught. He's not saying, this is what Moses taught and now I'm raising the bar. No. Which is why he begins, notice there in verse 21, you have heard that it was said. That it was said. Now, why does he say that? Well, because while Jesus is going to go on to quote here from the law, he will also explain and fill out the true intent of the law. He wants to show the law's true meaning, the law's true intention, and how the religious leaders of his day had misinterpreted and misunderstood the law. And so then, notice in these six examples listed here, notice the first five of them. He cites a portion of the Old Testament law. You see it there, verse 21, verse 27, verse 31, verse 33, verse 38. The first five there. And then, in the sixth one, he actually misquotes the law. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The law never said that. So Jesus, the great law fulfiller, is going to correct and explain and expound the true meaning, the true purpose and intent of the Old Testament law. And he begins here first this week, I know last week we kind of skipped ahead, right, to lust, but he, he begins here in the flow of the Sermon on the Mount with this issue of anger. He's addressing the problem of anger. Now notice how this passage this morning is structured before we dive in. Look at verse there, 21. Jesus, he's going to give the Old Testament commandment. Notice he restates the Old Testament law. You shall not murder. And then in verse 22, he shows the true intent of that law. What it, what it meant. And then, and, and the radical righteousness required. 
for his kingdom by forbidding even the disposition of the heart that leads to murder. It's anger. So he goes to the root here. And then notice in verses 23 and following, he's going to give two examples of just how seriously and urgently we should deal with the sin of anger. And let me just remind you here, if you didn't notice it as we read, these words are radical. Not, not unlike what we saw last week. So this issue of anger is no small thing. And it's meant to be extremely personal for you this morning. It's meant to touch your heart this morning. And it's meant to guide you into a real, radical kind of righteousness. So two headings I want you to see here this morning. Number one, first, the heart of anger, or excuse me, the heart of murder, which is anger. The heart of murder, verses 21 and 22. And the second, the practical examples of dealing with anger. And there's two of them that express the priority and the urgency with which we should deal with this sin of anger. So first, heading number one, notice with me the heart of murder. Verses 21 and 22. And what Jesus, what Jesus wants to do here is he wants to show the seriousness the severity of anger. And he does that first in verse 21 by giving the Old Testament commandment, and then in verse 22 by showing the true radical meaning of that commandment. And by doing so, he's getting at the very heart of murder. What is murder at its root? Well, notice first the Old Testament commandment. Look there, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So verse 21, Jesus, notice he begins by quoting the Old Testament law, by quoting the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments. It's found in Exodus chapter 20, found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Jesus is saying, you know this. This is, this is nothing new. You've heard this commandment before. You know what the law clearly states. Murder is wrong. Now, isn't it interesting? It's quite amazing that all, think about this, all civilized societies agree, except when it comes to abortion, all civilized societies agree that murder is wrong. Every culture, every society, I mean, you would be hard-pressed to find someone who disagrees with this commandment. Murder is morally wrong. Isn't that amazing? All of mankind intrinsically knows that murder is wrong and it should be punished. Now, why is that? Well, I think it's because even though they don't want to admit it, every single person knows from the womb to the tomb, every person has value, dignity, and worth by virtue of being created in the image of God. They are image bearers of God, and therefore it's wrong. They know that deep down, whether they want to admit it or not. Every person knows that, and Jesus says, the Old Testament law forbids that. Murder is breaking God's law. And verse 21, notice the judgment for taking someone's life, for murdering was capital punishment. Verse 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The judgment under the Old Testament law for murder was death. Capital punishment. For example, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Right there. Exodus chapter 21, verse 12 says, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. The penalty, the judgment for murder under the old covenant was death. Which means, just as a side note, 
Not every act of killing is murder. Not every act of killing is murder. The Old Testament clearly states that when someone murders, their life is to be taken because murder is really defaming the image of God in someone else. It's actually an assault on the Creator Himself. And so the guilty person's life is to be taken, but that second death isn't murder, it's the lawful killing, giving full weight to the murder. So Jesus just starts with the basics. I mean, this is, this is Old Testament law 101. You've heard it was said to those of old, basic Old Testament ethics, if you murder someone, you will be killed, you will be liable to judgment. But then, then Jesus says something that would have absolutely shocked them. In verse 22, he then takes what he's just said about murder, what the Old Testament says, and he fills it out so that it applies to every act of sinful anger. Verse 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So he moves, notice, from the Old Testament commandment to the radical righteousness demanded. Verse 22, Jesus here, he's, he's, he's filling out this Old Testament commandment, you shall not murder. And he's giving us here the, the fullest Deepest, truest expression of the law. The true meaning, the true intent behind God's law. There's, there's actually something more fundamental at stake here. Jonathan Pennington, he writes this. He says, quote, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter by saying that the real issue underneath murder is not the act itself, as wrong and devastating and as consequential as it is, but the heart or the inner disposition. So Jesus, notice he's doing the same thing here with anger that he did last week with lust. He's, he's pulling back the curtain so that you can, you can see the heart behind it and he's showing us that what's going on in the heart is what is most important. It's not just murderous actions, but attitudes. Whoever lusts has committed adultery. Whoever is angry has already committed murder. It's a matter of the heart. Which, by the way is what God has always been concerned about. It's the heart. Perhaps the, the Pharisees, they had interpreted the law to be too narrow to really focus only on the act itself, right? If you don't do that, you're okay. And Jesus, no, he's saying it's, it's a matter of your heart. And then he goes on to say, that whoever has committed murder in their hearts, whoever has committed the sin of anger, isn't simply liable to the death penalty under the old covenant, but is liable to hell. It's not the court of men, it's the court of God. Verse 22, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment and then notice just the escalation here of the metaphors, okay? Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. I think, I think we miss the point if we try to slice the differences between those three too, too finely. No, together they're showing that what God sees... What God cares about is something much deeper than just the physical act itself. And even 
the heart attitude can land you in hell. Verse 22, notice the hell of fire. Literally, the Gehenna of fire. It's the Greek, Gehenna. The valley of Gehenna was just outside the city of Jerusalem to the south. 2 Kings chapter 2 tells us that at, at one point, it was actually a place where human sacrifices were offered. But by Jesus' day here, it was now basically the, the permanent city dump. It's where all the trash went to be burned. And Jesus often uses it as a picture to describe eternal punishment, eternal damnation in hell. In verse 22, he says, everyone who is angry is liable, liable to hell. You will face eternal judgment of God in hell. Now just feel the weight of that, okay, this morning. Jesus is, he's turning up the volume, isn't he? I took my son to a rock concert this week, and I, my ears are still ringing. I think I'm getting too old for this. It was loud. Jesus is turning up the volume. He's turning up the volume here on the law, and he's saying, okay, you've heard it said that murder was wrong, but he turns it up. I want you to see that even anger is wrong. But he's also turning up the sentencing as well. Oh, murder gets the death penalty. I want you to see that even anger gets you eternal damnation in hell. Beloved, this is no small thing. Anger is a sin which, if undealt with, if unchecked, will damn you. It will damn you to hell. Jesus is speaking here to his disciples, and he's warning them, if they are given to anger, if you allow anger to grow in your heart, if it is undealt with, then you will wind up in hell. You will never enter my kingdom with anger in your heart. Now that seems like a bit much. He goes even further. Even further, because look at verse 22. He says it isn't just angry, murderous intentions. It's even hateful insults, slandering, and name-calling. Whoever, verse 22, insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Even hateful, harsh words. Even the guy who says, you fool. Now, allow me just to answer a few possible objections here. Isn't there such a thing, pastor, as righteous anger? I mean, didn't Jesus get angry? And yes, there is such a thing as good, righteous anger. If, if you are angry because you're upset at seeing the glory of God defamed, then yes, that's a good thing. But even then, our motives are often mixed. <laughs> Jerry Bridges writes this, quote, Even then, we are likely more concerned with the negative impact of the sinful actions on us than we are that it's a violation of God's law. So be careful not to label your personal offense as righteous anger. Or how about another objection? Well, didn't, didn't even Jesus at time call people fools? Matthew chapter 23, verse 17, speaking to the Pharisees, he says, you blind fools. Paul calls the Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, oh, foolish Galatians. Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
Yes, but there is a difference between calling someone a fool when they're acting foolish and calling someone a fool in a hateful, demeaning, derogatory way. Verse 22, Jesus is teaching here, his reference is to anger resulting in insults and name-calling. Look at verse 22. Whoever insults his brother. Now, the New American Standard translates it, whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing. NIV translates the word from the Aramaic, raka. Anyone who says to his brother or sister, raka, which is the equivalent of saying empty-headed. Our modern equivalents, Kent Hughes writes, would be calling someone a numbskull, nimwit, blockhead, brainless idiot. Whoever insults his brother. And then look at verse 22. That term fool there. Fool comes from the Greek word moros, from which we get the word moron. How about that? A.B. Bruce, a a Scottish theologian, he perfectly, I think, summarizes what Jesus means here with these two words when he writes this, quote, raka, that word translated there as insult, expresses contempt for a man's head, and more, fool, expresses contempt for his heart or his character. You scoundrel. Together, he says, these words express degradation to the entire man, his head and his heart. And to degrade a man's head and his heart is to kill the man with the mind, and it is as easy, evil, and damnable as murder. To murder another is to destroy in that person the image of God. And by the same token, if you slay others with your hateful, mean, bitter, harsh words. You've just murdered that person in your mind. You've just done in your heart, inwardly, what guns and knives do outwardly. Sinclair Ferguson writes, to kill them with a knife or to engage in character assassination with anger or to belittle another person by calling them a fool is part and parcel of the same spiritual sickness. Doesn't mean there's no difference between anger and murder, but it's the symptom of the same spiritual sickness. How many husbands are harsh and loveless with fits of anger in their home toward their wife and children? How many wives constantly tear down their husbands, not giving them the respect that God commands them to give him, instead pouring out resentment upon him because he's not everything she wants him to be? Angry words, angry attitudes like nuclear bombs devastating everything in their wake. Angry hearts carelessly stabbing and shooting with their words. Are some of you allowing little bits of slander that are going to one day tear this church in half? And listen, my fear, my fear is that many Christians today are being discipled, not by Jesus. They're being discipled by conservative politicians who berate and demean and insult their opponents, who may, yes, see some of the foolishness of the world, but are poisoning minds that lead people to hell. And Jesus wants us to see here the seriousness of anger. And the absolute, listen, the absolute worst possible thing you could do right now 
is try to soften Jesus' words. Yeah, but no, no. Anger is, Jesus says, the same spiritual sickness as murder, and it can send you to hell. And we need to see the seriousness of anger, because then Jesus gives two examples Notice of the links his disciples must go to in order to deal with it. Point number two, notice with me the two practical examples of dealing with anger. Look there, verses 23 to 26. He makes his point clearly in verse 21 and 22 of how serious anger is. But then, notice, he wants to illustrate that point by showing the extreme measures we must go to in dealing with anger. And we know this because... Of that word, therefore, verse 23, therefore. So he's illustrating his point, so that. Now let me just make a couple of observations here about these two examples. Observation number one, just notice the first example seems to be between fellow believers. Right? So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother, your brother, your fellow Christian has something against you. So he's addressing interpersonal relationships within the church. That's often how this word is used. And we should reconcile with our brothers, our sisters in Christ. But the second example seems to be between a believer and an unbeliever. Notice there, verse 25. When Jesus calls for reconciliation, it seems like with an enemy. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. So it seems he's addressing both the need to reconcile relationships where there's anger between believers and unbelievers. And then observation number two. Notice, Jesus isn't only forbidding the anger and disdain that motivates murder in verse 22. But look here. He's even telling his disciples to seek to remove that sin of anger from others as well. Be a peacemaker. Verse 23, if your brother has something against you. So this isn't something you have against somebody else, although it includes that. This is something somebody else has against you. Verse 25, your enemy is accusing you. You're not dragging them to court. They're dragging you to court. So Jesus elevates it here to say that his kingdom citizens should seek reconciliation in relationships where there's anger and animosity, whether you're the offended one or you're the offending party, even if you know someone is angry with you. That's just how serious my disciples should be about resolving conflict and anger. So notice the two examples. And the first one deals, notice, it's, it, it, it addresses the priority of dealing with anger. And the second example addresses the urgency of dealing with anger. Example number one, notice there, the priority. The priority of dealing with anger. Verse 23 and 24, Jesus focuses here on the top priority we should have in dealing with anger and resolving conflict. In fact, Jesus says it's, it's of a higher priority than even ceremonial worship. It is more important to resolve conflict, to squash anger, than to go to church. It would be better, you would be better off missing church and resolving the issue than never missing a Sunday gathering. And it isn't minimizing the importance of the Sunday gathering. It should be the most important thing in your week. This top priority. Verse 23. So, because of the seriousness of anger, if you are offering your gift at the altar, now he's speaking to Old Testament Jews here, this would, this would be the temple in Jerusalem, but the principle still applies for all time, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, leave your offering, leave your sacrifice there before the altar and go first, now there's the priority, right? First, 
Be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Now what's really striking about this illustration is that Jesus, in the context of Matthew, is giving this illustration in the northern province of Galilee. See that Matthew chapter 4 verse 23, which means that the people he's talking to are about 80 miles from the city of Jerusalem, where the altar was, where you went to offer your, your sacrifices and your gifts. Anybody else understand what's going on here? In other words, he's saying, if you're down in Jerusalem at the temple, offering your gift, I mean, you're in the middle of a ceremonial act of worship. And then you recognize, you realize, oh, my brother is angry with me, or I'm angry with my brother. Your, 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 your anger has offended someone, or they have something against you. Leave that gift, travel 80 miles back home, deal with the anger, reconcile, and then come 80 miles back and worship. That's radical, isn't it? Jesus wants us to prioritize, even with extreme measures, to get right with those we've offended, and then come and offer corporate worship. What's he concerned about? It isn't the external religious ceremony. It's the heart. The religious ceremony, externally, outwardly, means nothing if it doesn't flow from a pure heart. There cannot be inconsistencies between your religious service and real life. No. Because to God, the service is nothing without your heart. So, with this first example, he says, we have to recognize as kingdom citizens the priority of dealing with anger. And what I love about this example is, is that Jesus doesn't just say, well, you just need to get right with God when you're angry. No. You must get right with those who are affected by your anger or who are angry with you because of something that you have done and you need to repent. Oh, beloved, what would that do to our marriages? What would that do to our churches if there was that kind of priority and real worship? It's calling for that kind of priority in dealing with anger. Example number two, look there, the urgency of dealing with anger. The urgency, verses 25 and 26. Now, this illustration, it's always just confused me a little bit. Um, it just seemed odd to me because I just, it just seemed out of place, like he's just giving practical wisdom for dealing with legal troubles, right? Look at verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'll be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So, legal advice, best to settle out of court. What's Jesus talking about? I think, I think Kent Hughes hits the nail on the head when he writes this. Jesus' advice is to do what you can to make amends and do it quickly. If you do not... An inevitable process, like a legal process, will catch up with you and, will and you will have to pay the maximum penalty. Personal conflicts can often be resolved if dealt with quickly. However, if one puts off dealing with them, you and everyone else will have to pay. We dare not ignore Jesus' advice. In other words, he's saying the focus here is on dealing urgently with it, the urgency of dealing with this anger quickly before it does lasting, irreparable damage, before it catches up with you, before it destroys your marriage, before it destroys your church, before it destroys some relationship or friendship, resolve it quickly. That's what he's saying. Jerry Bridges says, nip it in the bud. While it's still small, for the roots of bitterness begin to grow. Not 25 years later, 
Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So Jesus is expressing here the urgency of dealing with the sin of anger. Not, not giving the cold shoulder and say, well, I'm not going to do anything until they come to me. No, we must deal with it quickly. And the same is true spiritually, friend. If you don't deal with the issue of anger, then you could face the legal judgment of God himself. So anger is a destroying fire that can lead to the hell of fire. Dealing with anger must be a top priority for Jesus' disciples, and you need to deal with it with the utmost urgency. Don't let it grow. Don't let it fester. So then let me leave you then with just a few points of closing application. A few points of closing application. Number one, first, some gospel encouragement. Some gospel encouragement. You've, you've, you've heard it said throughout this series on the Sermon on the Mount that the Sermon on the Mount is meant to expose and it's meant to encourage, right? And our passage this morning is a perfect example of that, amen? Because it exposes the problem of anger in all of us. Every single one of us this morning lay bare. Every single one of us in this room this morning are exposed here in this passage. And so there may be some of you here this morning that that exposure could lead you to despair. It could lead you to despair because you regularly struggle with the sin of anger. I, I, I often struggle with the sin of anger, you might say. And so if that's you this morning, if that's you, then I just want to remind you, okay, listen very carefully, that your entrance into the kingdom of heaven isn't going to be based on you. It isn't going to be based on how you don't get angry. No. It will only be because there was one who was sinless in every way who bore the anger of God against your sin for you. Because Jesus Christ stood in your place and there was one who faced hell for you, he went into that fire for you so that you would never face the hell of fire. And the Bible says that if you will repent of your sin and you will put all of your hope and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sin, God will forgive you, God will cleanse you, God will clothe you in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, and he alone is the one who grants you access into the kingdom of heaven. It's a free gift of grace only by the cross of Jesus Christ. And now he wants to empower you by that grace, freeing you by his spirit within you to actually be able to fight and overcome the sin of anger. So receive that gospel encouragement this morning. The gospel transforms angry people. It's Jesus' righteousness, not your own. But I also, as our hearts are exposed this morning, I, I, I don't want to soften Jesus' warning here either. Seeing some, some, some gospel encouragement, here's the second point of application, some necessary warning. There's a very real warning here. And I just want to remind you that Jesus is talking here to those who are his disciples, believers. And this warning is meant to encourage them to put the sin of anger to death. Last week, how serious should we be about putting lust to death in our lives? Your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. 
If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? Because if you don't deal with the sin of anger, it'll send you to hell. The sin of lust, it'll send you to hell. If you don't deal with the sin of anger, it'll send you to hell. Unrepentant sin will lead you to hell. Heaven will be filled with justified sinners, but not unrepentant sinners. If you don't fight it, if you don't battle it, if you don't deal with the sin of anger, it will damn you to the hell of fire. I think one of the primary reasons why most of us don't get victory and freedom over the sin of anger is because we don't recognize it with the level of seriousness Jesus says here. Ah, I just blew my top. And we don't grapple with warnings like this all over the Bible. We don't overcome anger because we fail to see it for what it really is. I had to see Dr. Lee this week for a foot problem I've been having. I'm over 40 now, so I guess it comes with the territory. I don't know. But what if every time we got an ingrown toenail... You knew it was going to lead to terminal cancer. What would you do? You'd be calling Dr. Lee tomorrow. You'd be finding him right after the service. Oh, it isn't that bad. It isn't that big a deal. How often, how often do we ignore the sin of anger? No, with anger, we have to call it what it is. It's murder. And we must heed the warning Jesus gives. You'll be liable to the hell of fire. So then, if we're going to fight it, how do we do that? How do we kill it? And how do we live grace-empowered lives to overcome it? How do we deal with the sin of anger? Here's the third application. Some helpful strategies. Okay? Very briefly. I found Jerry Bridges here to be very helpful in giving us strategies for battling anger as he talks about clearing out the weeds of anger. He says anger is like weeds, right? You don't deal with it. It just takes over. It grows. So how do you deal with anger? Bridges offers three helpful practical suggestions. Let me just give them to you. And then I'll pray. We'll sing. We'll be done. Number one. He says, we deal with anger by having a firm belief in the sovereignty of God. We deal with anger by having a firm belief in the sovereignty of God. That while God doesn't cause people to sin against us, He does allow it. And it's always allowed for a reason. It's always allowed sovereignly for a purpose. And most often, what is it? Your sanctification. It's your growth in Christ-likeness. Think, think with me for just a moment about the story of Joseph. Right? Remember Joseph? wrongly by his brothers, sold into slavery. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph had every right to be angry with them, to seek revenge on them. But what happens? In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He could have become angry. He could have become bitter. Instead, what does he do? He sees... The sovereign hand of God at work. Bridges writes this, quote, I have found that a firm belief in the sovereignty of God is my first defense against the temptation to allow anger to linger in my mind and emotions. I actively call to mind that the actions of another person that triggered my initial response of anger are under the sovereign control of God. Though the actions may be sinful in themselves, God intends them for my good, and the good may be an opportunity to grow in Christ's likeness. It is enough to know that however difficult the situation and however strong the temptation to become angry, God intends good. He wants to make you more like Jesus. We must deal with it by having a firm belief in the sovereignty of God. Second, we deal with anger by asking God to grow in us a love that overlooks sinful actions against us. Ask God 
to grow in us a love that overlooks sinful actions against us. Listen to this, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, Peter says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So what's going to enable you not to get angry? What's going to enable you not to become bitter and overlook an offense? Peter says, it's love. It's love. Earnest love. Someone snubs you. Someone wrongs you. Someone hurts you deeply, irritates you. Love enables you to overlook it. Bridges gives this example. When the strong-willed husband comes home and finds the house in a mess and dinner not prepared, he can allow love to cover the situation. In fact, if he follows the path of love, he will not only overlook that which tempts him to anger, he'll roll up his sleeves and pitch in to help. He will follow the example of the Lord Jesus, who in full awareness of his deity, performed the most menial tasks of washing the disciples' feet in love. Or ladies, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love, love keeps no record of wrong. Do you file away in your mind all your husband's wrongs? That's just going to lead to bitterness. No, to keep no record of wrongs means you cease to bring it up. Which is exactly what God in Christ has done for you. And by doing that, you don't allow anger to gain a foothold in your heart. Here's the third and final one Bridges gives. We deal with anger by learning to forgive as God has forgiven us. Every sin we commit, regardless of how insignificant it may seem to you, is an offense against the infinite worth of God. And yet God has forgiven you. He has dealt with His anger against you for your sin by reconciling you to Himself in Jesus. And therefore, as those transformed by grace, you must do the same. So if you want to grow in love... If you want to be empowered to forgive, if you want to overcome anger, then think on the debt that your sin owed to God and the great lengths he's gone to in order to forgive you. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What's the motivation to be kind? What's the motivation to be tender-hearted and to forgive? God in Christ. Forgiving you. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Friend, if you're struggling with forgiveness and resentment to someone who's wronged you, what do you do? Paul says, remember the enormity of your debt that you owe to God and remember God's forgiveness of you. Bridges says, I suspect that much of our anger is not a result of significant injustices and wrongs against us. And let me just say, many of you have experienced significant injustice and wrongs. They're real. You too can be liberated to forgive, to not be angry. But he says, it's not a result of that most of the time, but is the manifestation of our pride and selfishness. One more passage. Titus chapter 3. And I think this is really helpful. For how we deal with this world that's running off the tracks in foolishness and evil. And how easily, Christians, you can be tempted to become angry. Sinfully angry. Titus chapter 3. Look what Paul says here. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Verse 3, for because we ourselves were once foolish. You're tempted to call someone a fool. You were once foolish. 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. May we be those who, having received the love and mercy of God, extend that love and mercy to others. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.